Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives. Brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. I'm Kim Schultz, producer of the podcast. Each week, we pair an interview from the Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project with a special guest, doing the work of justice today to reflect and engage racial equity then and now. But before we get to the discussion, let's bring in our host, Reverend Brian E. Smith. Thanks, Kim. For today's episode, we welcome Brandis Friedman. Brandis is a co-anchor and correspondent for Chicago Tonight on WTTW, and we are thrilled she is joining us. But before we get to that conversation, let's take a listen to a 15-minute clip from an interview with Ms. Hermaine Hartman. Hermaine is the founder of Chicago's leading Black MAGA paper, Indigo, and one of the few African-American women in publishing. Here's Hermaine. My father was one of the original business contributors in Breadbasket. So he was in that group, the original group. I'm talking about when Jesse was still in seminary. And my mother would say, you know, you type, you could contribute to this. So Dr. King was coming and going. And she suggested, I was very shy. You all believe that, if, if you will. But I was very, very shy. I typed very fast. I was the fastest typist in my school. And I typed about 150 words a minute on a real typewriter. So my mother was saying, you should go volunteer for them. You should go work. You could supply something to that group. My father said, yes, but she's too young because my father saw the young men. And he was like, I don't think she's ready yet. How old were you at that point? 15, 16. So when Dr. King died, I felt very guilty. Could have and didn't. And my mother said to me, everything is not money. Sometimes you should do things because you should do things. You could have learned something and you would have been involved in some kind of way, but you missed an opportunity. So I felt guilty, and Jesse blew up. The meetings were, when I got involved, were at the Parkway Ballroom on Saturday mornings, and I started going to go. I had some aunts who were also urging me, like, you should go and get involved, and I did. So the first time I went by myself, there was a little girl and an older lady, her grandmother, and they motioned me to, you know, come sit with us. And the little girl was all in my lap, and we became friends, and the grandmother and I, we talked. So the next week I went back, and it was the same thing. You know how in church you find somebody to sit with? We became buddies. And then the third week, the lady said, you're astute, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she says, so what are you studying? And I said, sociology. And she said, you should meet my grandson. And I said, why? And she said, because he's graduated already, but sociology was his major too. And I said, okay, I'll be happy to meet him. 
Well, the grandson was Jesse Jackson, who was Jesse's grandmother, Tibby. And the little girl was Santita. And so Jesse said, what do you do? And, you know, past student, he was like, but what else do you do? So I said, well, I, I'm a, I know how to, I'm an office worker. I know how to do secretarial work and all that. And he says, well, you need to join us. Why don't you come to the office during the week when you get out of school? And I said, okay, I can do that. And I did. So I went to the office for a full week, one solid week after school, and sat in that office until 5 o'clock every day. Nobody ever said anything to me. Can I help you? Why are you here? Hello? Nothing. So the next Saturday when I went to Breadbasket, I said to Jesse, I came to the office like you said, but nobody said anything to me, and I don't know if I'm not coming back this week. So he said, did you say anything to anybody? And I was like, no. And he said, why don't you say something to somebody? And I said, no, why don't we make an appointment? And if we make an appointment with you, then I'll come back. Okay, so it's Jesse, it's David Wallace, it's Gary Massoni, Al Pitcher, and Ed Riddick. That was the office and some secretaries, but I was working with them. So Jesse was conscious of that because my father went to him to say, she's young and no foolishness, absolutely none. And, you know, keep your eye on her. He would say to me every day, you read your book, you write your paper, let me see your paper. So what he was really doing was, okay, what about this? Did you read this book? Maybe you should read that book. Let's talk about this book. But that was with a Patrick. It was with him but it was also with David. It was always Dr. Pitcher. So my papers had review, really, internally amongst them. So it meant you maybe wrote a little more, wrote a little better, read another book, but that was my experience. There were two women there who were very important, Reverend Willie Barrow and Lucille Lohman. Lucille Lohman was like the operator the operational person at the organization. And that was ministers, that was fundraising, was keeping Jesse in check, that was the businessman. She kinda was the coordinator of that. And then she was Jesse's main secretary. So type these letters, make this phone call, do that. But Jesse, I always worked with Jesse me and him. So one time he told me to call President Johnson. And he said, but don't tell nobody. You just go do it. Because they, they weren't going to do it. And um, I got through. It took me a week. But I got through. And when I got through, this is the funny thing. When I got to Johnson's office and I said, Reverend Jackson from Chicago's calling he thought it was Joseph Jackson, not Jesse Jackson, because he didn't know who Jesse Jackson was. You all know Joseph Jackson? Okay. So he came to the phone, and I was like, oh, Jesse, I got him. 
Jesse went and did whatever his dialogue was. But he was like, that was good. That was good. It's me and you, me and you. So tell me about the character of the women that were working. What do you mean the character? They were Talk strong. About them. Yeah. Oh, what they kind were of people were they? Strong, no nonsense, do as I say do. Don't fool around. Action oriented, serious. You mentioned that they were approached at one point by feminists. Reverend Barrow. She not Lucille. Okay. Reverend Barrow. Could you talk about what happened in that exchange? So the Vietnam War was on. So, okay, so wait. So in school, there were two activisms. One was women, feminist movement, and the fight was legalization of abortion. And then the other was civil rights. So as a black woman, often you had to make a choice. Am I going to the black movement or I'm going to the feminist movement? And I was riding both. I was trying to do both. And Reverend Barrow and I would have these conversations. Are you more woman than you are black or are you more black than you are woman? How do we cope with this? How do we deal with this? Confusing. I mean, like really confusing. But... The women were mostly white women, and the black was black. Both were integrated, but the balance was very different. So the war, I think it was the war, but Reverend Barrow at one point was being pulled into the feminist movement because she was a very successful civil rights organizer. Reverend Barrow had at Push, or Breadbasket at that time, the Consumer Club. So when Jesse said, let's go march, those were Willie's people marching. They were under her auspice. Not that Jesse didn't have people. I don't mean that. That's not true. But she had something called Consumer Club. And so the Consumer Club, female-oriented, and I want 100 women to stand up and go on the line. And she got it. Jesse had the men. The men would come and, you know, they were going to protect the line, make sure nothing happened, all that kind of stuff. So Reverend Barrow started getting pulled. Feminist movement, black movement. Feminist movement, black movement. I used to write her speeches when she would go and maybe make a speech, but her feminist was always black. (laughs) And... At one point, she was really asked to leave the civil rights movement, come here. You know, they were going to pay her a nice salary. She was going to travel, da-da-da. But she, she wouldn't have it. What was her response? No. And did she ever talk to you about why? Because she was black. Because the black movement was more important than the feminist movement. White women going to take care of themselves. They'll, it'd be all right. They got daddies and husbands. We got to stay over here. About a year ago... When the Annette Young, when they came into her home, that upset me. That was unnerving. And I called Jeanette and I said, we got to do something about this. This is just intolerable. We got a black mayor. We got a female mayor. Uh, This can't happen. So we did a little research. And the research showed there was 6,300 and something such cases over the last three years. They were all on black women and Hispanic women. There were no white women. There was no North Side. I was infuriated. 
So we began to organize women. It wasn't black women, white, it was women. Because if this can happen to this woman, professional woman, social worker, wrong apartment, she's telling you it's the wrong part. It could happen to any one of us. Okay, so I saw it as a unit, it unified women and men didn't touch that. And this was last year, but men didn't touch it. But it became a woman's thing. And we went to the police and got policy changed and so forth. And it was like, I'm not doing no 10 marches. You're all going to do this now. Because now, you know, I got this media tool I can use and I'm going to beat you up. We got it done. And it wasn't long. It was about 30 days, maybe 45. It wasn't long. And so we see an evolution even in terms of how you describe how you do your activism. You leverage media. And leverage media, leverage power. But we marched. We had a march on, I think it was Easter Sunday. We marched. And it was very deliberate. It was very strategic. It was very planned. And the superintendent, they were calling me saying, could you call this march off? And I said, no. It's like, well, we want to meet with you. Why don't you just come meet with us? No. I'm not meeting with you now. I'll meet with you after we get through marching. And you're not meeting with me by myself. You know, that's all movement strategy. You don't meet with nobody by yourself. And you don't let them peel you off. So I took eight women with me. Jeanette was one of them. But I took eight women down there. And we met with the police department to say, we want this stopped. We want the policy change. And here's some recommendations that we have for you. And he did everything. Did all, and I said, when is this going into effect? He said, immediately. It's going into effect tomorrow morning. And he did everything. So it was the knowledge of, you say, 30 years later, leverage of power, how to use it, media as a tool of exposure, and just determination. But the base root of it was pulling women together. And we marched, but we had every TV camera in town there on why and the particulars, and the protests, and what we wanted. Jesse came, because after we got it all together, then he came and said, okay, now this is why they're marching. He gave a big summary. (laughs) What a powerful interview that was with Hermaine Hartman. So much to dig into, and we're about to do just that. I'm so glad to be here today in conversation with Brandis Friedman. I invited Ms. Friedman because she is a leader in journalism based in the Chicagoland area. She also happens to be an African-American woman and a product of a historically Black university. Friedman came to WTTW in 2019 from WBEBM News Radio, where she was an anchor and reporter. She grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi, graduated from Dillard University in New Orleans, and received her master's degree from the journalism school at Columbia University in New York. She also won three regional Emmys during her tenure in D.C. and one in the Chicagoland area. Welcome, Brandis. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. At the opening portion of this clip, you heard a heartfelt testimony from Hermaine regarding her start with the breadbasket movement. And I want to ask you, what were your impressions? It made me think, I was like, wow, what a time, right? What a time for her to have been involved and to have been there. And it sounds like, you know, she also learned a lesson from something that her mother told her about getting involved when that opportunity presents itself. I was also really impressed 
with, you know, she says that she goes to the office and, you know, she sits there every day after school for like a week and nobody says anything. And Reverend Jackson's like, well, did you say anything? And I'm like, oh, he's got a point. And then she's like, let's make an appointment. I'm like, that is, A, it's brilliant because people always tell you to show up, but then show up and do what? But also like, you know, it was bold for a young person to say that to Reverend Jackson at the time. Obviously he wasn't the household name then that he is today, but I was impressed with her. And obviously, you know, it makes sense that even as a teenager, you know, she had that kind of thought to say, why don't we schedule an appointment just so that everybody's using their time wisely? I was impressed with that. That was one of my first takeaways from listening to that. So you saw that early on she was industrious and she was actually prepared for the assignment that was uh, before her. Were you surprised by anything else that you heard? I think there was another surprise later on <laughs> when Reverend Jackson tells her to call the White House and call President Johnson, get him on the phone. And they think that she is calling representing Joseph Jackson, not Jesse Jackson, whatever, it worked. And she ended up getting him on the phone. So, you know, you, you hear a lot of folks tell stories from back then and you're like, how did you get away with that? And, you know, some of those are the stories that end up making history, clearly. And what was so amazing about that is the fact that they were all young people. We tend to see them in the present era. But they were younger than us, perhaps. Of course, her main, as she mentioned. And so you almost have to imagine a different person, even as you hear them telling the story. I think I agree with you in terms of the circumstances surrounding her early tenure. And also the fact that, I don't know if you recognize it when you were listening, she talked about the involvement of women and how heavily involved they were in this movement. And I'm wondering uh, if you were surprised or what your takeaway was when you heard about this awesome presence of women that were in leadership during that time. You know, it doesn't surprise me. I feel like, you know, you look at a lot of that history and so much of it is led by men. And, you know, we hear today, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case, but we hear today, you know, instances of women being written out of the history. I think about Tina Turner recently, right? Last week she passes and we learn about how she taught Mick Jagger to dance. So the song should actually be the moves like Tina, not the moves like Jagger. And so it's another instance. And immediately I'm like, man, there's another instance of a white man taking credit for something that a black woman did. And that's just in that instance, right? But it does not surprise me that there were so many women involved in the movement in different ways. I think it is unfortunate that we don't know their names and we don't hear about them and know about them the way we do the men who led that movement. You know, a lot of people, I think only recently have we started to address, you know, that Coretta Scott King, for example, she was a civil rights activist and was working on it. And obviously it would make sense that they would have it in common when she would later meet and marry her husband. What's his name? (laughs) (laughs) And so it's not like she was backup. These women weren't backup, right? They were part of the movement and they were leading it as well. And, you know, at the same time, the other part that resonated with me was, you know, she's talking about how is it Reverend Barrow, who I think was, you know, the, the women's movement was trying to recruit her. And a lot of the black women who were already working on civil rights had to stay focused on civil rights and working on that. And it kind of made sense to me, right? I remember when I was in college at Dillard, my senior year, I had a class by 
was it Gloria Wade Gales, I think. <laughs> it was an African-American women's novel class. And, you know, we kind of learn about Black women being sort of womanists, not feminists, right? Because of like the, the different meanings that those two words take on. And I also think that, you know, Black women who were involved with the civil rights movement at the time knew that the feminist movement had left them behind. It had not always worked out for them and had left them behind in the past. But, you know, when we're talking about getting the right to vote for women, didn't necessarily always work for Black women and that movement. I think there was a trade that eventually was made and then Black women were left out. And so they knew that at the time. I mean, and when we think about it, right, all of us are Black first, aren't we? Like you kind of leave it up to genetics to decide whether we're born a man or a woman and or something else if that's what you choose and that's how you feel. But we're Black first, right? And I think that it felt like something that they had to focus on. Yeah, Hermaine mentioned that to the Black female leaders, the Black movement was more important than the feminist movement. You touched on that because, of course, yes, as a female, you have certain challenges, but then there's that challenge of driving and doing business and trying to buy homes and trying to do things while being a Black person. I was fascinated when she shared that story with me. I don't know about you in terms of the numbers of, of leaders that were present. I heard a few of those names, but a lot of the names that uh, she mentioned in the interview were new to me at the time that we spoke. Did you know about any of the uh, female leaders prior to the podcast? I didn't. They're all new to me. I mean, obviously, I knew that they existed, right? Like, I knew it's not, it can't just be a movement of men. But yeah, and I think that's a problem, isn't it, right? Like, that I didn't know those names, and I, there's a lot that I don't know. And so that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to know those names, but I think that's more of I don't want to say a failure, but like their stories haven't been told, right? And it's an absence of their stories. I think that's missing. And I, I think I'm getting ideas, right? I'm like, ooh, how can we address that? And who are these women? And what are their stories? And what do people need to know? So as a Black female journalist, did you see any parallels with your own experiences in media? I kind of think of her as, you know, someone to learn from, right? Like, you know, she's naming all of the names of these folks, these other women who were a part of the, the breadbasket movement and the leadership whose names we don't know. And so she kind of holds all that history in her own experience. And I consider her someone to kind of listen to and learn from and whose story I'd like to hear. I think we probably had different experiences, though. I feel like mine was fairly linear in that, you know, I went to college to study mass communications, and then I went to graduate school for journalism. And then I got my first job as a TV news reporter in Wichita Falls, Texas, and kind of followed what is, I think, considered a fairly typical route to get to where I am today. And I mean, fairly typical, right? Everybody's journey is different. And some people end up choosing a different path somewhere along the way, right? Like a lot of the folks that I started in this industry with are no longer in this industry. So I'm thankful that I've been able to keep it up but I get the impression that she has done a lot of creating of her own, whereas I've always been working for other people and working for the station or for the company. And so I think our experiences are, are a little bit different, but I think there's room for all of them. And honestly, you know what? I can have a fairly linear experience because someone like her, you know, sort of paved a way. One of the things that I appreciate is your work with Black Voices. And of course, you gave me an opportunity to share some of my work on your particular segment. But I want to talk now about leveraging media power for good. You may recall during the segment, Hermaine mentions her experiences engaging in activism for Mrs. Anjanette Young, the social worker who was the victim of police violence during a no-knock raid. 
And she mentioned that she was equipped with the power of media and it marked an evolution of her own activism. Given the fact that you do work, albeit linear, you still leverage your work for good, in my opinion. How else do you leverage your media profile for the public good? I think we try and do it all the time, right? Like every day, like you mentioned, Black Voices. And the thing that I like about Black Voices is it is a young show. It's been around for, I think, three years this summer, fall, you know, we started it in 2020, right? And everybody recalls The Reckoning, the summer of 2020. And so we kind of got the idea for this show then, and then it launched in September of that year. And because it is a younger, newer show with, you know, somewhat of a different audience, we're kind of allowed to do what we want, right? <laughs> and so we're often trying different approaches to stories, or, you know, maybe this isn't the kind of story that we would do on Chicago Tonight, but we can do it on Chicago Tonight Black Voices, because we're just kind of throwing lots of things at the wall to see what sticks. So we have a lot more freedom with that show, because we're still kind of figuring out who that show is and and a little bit, you know, who it's for, right? We're still trying to get folks to come over to us because we're a young show. And so I think because of that, we can lift up all kinds of voices. We had a guest on the show or, you know, a couple of segments that we had fairly recently. One was about veterans and their mental health specific to Black veterans, right? And kind of highlighting the disparities that exist just for Black veterans. And sometimes, you know, we can have on a dynamic guest because who is Black talking about whatever their specialty might be, right? So Kelly Richmond Pope is a, she's an expert on fraud, right? And she's a Black woman, but fraud does not only exist for Black people, right? So she is sharing the work that she has done just because we thought she does great work. And we wanted to share that whether or not the subject matter itself is about Black people. And obviously, we have white guests. We had a Northwestern professor on some weeks ago who learned through research that she is a descendant of Benjamin Banneker and telling her story. Oh, my. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's part education, right? It is part providing context and history, because one thing I love about Chicago is its rich history. And so I love kind of like using that history to provide the context of where we are today and also just uplifting voices, right? We've got a pair of brothers who are still waiting to find out whether or not they've been exonerated, right? But they still haven't gotten the certificate of innocence yet. And they're still going back to court trying to get that. And their story is kind of heartbreaking after they've been wrongfully imprisoned and now exonerated. Why don't they have this? And what are the reasons for it? What are the reasons they don't have it? So, you know, we're trying to uplift a lot of voices and tell all the stories on Black Voices. Well, let me tell you that I enjoy the stories about food. I'm a foodie. Me and, too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we just had one last week too. <laughs> yeah, that was fascinating to me. And, you know, just seeing food excites me. And I really enjoy those segments when you present the different food options. And of course, that's Chicago. It's not just the Black community. I mean, people come to Chicago because of the great food. Yeah, you're in good company. Both my producer, Erica Gunderson, and I are both also big foodies as well. And so we fight over the food segments like you're going to bring some samples back, right? Obviously. Wow. (laughs) You know what? Believe it or not, our work actually encompasses food. We have Martin Deppe, who was a part of the movement, who was the convener of the first covenant with Jewel Foods. And that was through Breadbasket. And so we still have all these amazing Black vendors that have food products, and it was the result of the breadbasket work. So it's really a fun segment. Maybe at some point we can talk about Black vendors that are actually, well, at least they are 
selling their products in Joe Foods. So it's an all encompassing movement and it's fascinating history that uh, many of us take for granted. I know, and I don't think I mentioned this to you, I have a daughter that is a junior at Xavier University. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So she just came home, but she'll be, uh, actually, she'll be going to Switzerland. She's um, going to be graduating next year out of New Orleans. And I do want her to have an opportunity to meet you, but I want to ask you this. What advice would you give to young professionals, young women like my daughter, and especially those who hope to enter into the media business? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's interesting you asked that because I was listening to 1A, hosted by Jen White on NPR. Among the guests were Amna Nawaz. She is, of course, one of the main anchors for PBS NewsHour. And I know Amna, and I think she's amazing. And they're talking about commencement addresses. And Jen asks, you know, what would you have told a young Amna during a commencement address if you were talking to yourself? And then I saw something similar on social media, but something to the effect of, stop comparing yourself to other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. That's their journey. What's important to you? What do you value? What is your sort of mission statement? And I think that's important, right? To kind of like think about what you value and what's what's important to you. And that'll kind of navigate how you choose and how you make decisions in life, which I think is important. But I would also say I feel like I worked hard at a young age. So I would say work hard. Don't be afraid to work hard. I know generationally there's sort of a, a difference between those of us who are like work hard and those who are anti-grind culture, which I also support, right? Because I think a lot of us end up working too hard and you're kind of like, wait, why am I exhausted and working too hard? And you're not going to be on your deathbed one day and go, whoo, wish I'd worked a little bit more, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, so, you're right. You know, that should go into the mission statement as well with regards to what you value and, you know, do you think you're overdoing it and what are you working for if you're working hard? But the other thing I would say, because I feel like a young Brandis, I was very focused, but I'm also like, I probably should have had a little bit more fun or a little bit more adventure. (laughs) You know, I spent a semester studying abroad when I was in college. You know, I went to work as a 20 something. Yes, you know, I had fun, but I was also pretty much, you know, focused on work as well and achieving and, and, you know, doing better. And I have an au pair, right, who helps me with my kids, and I'm thankful to have her. But the au pairs are really good about traveling, right? Like, they travel a lot in Europe if they're from Europe and in their home country. When they come here, they travel a lot around the country. And they're taking the opportunity while they're young to see the world. And I wish I had done a little bit more of that when I was younger. Obviously, that costs money, so, you know, (laughs) you have to work within your limits, But yeah, I, I think I would say, you know, kind of like what Hermaine's mother said to her is take the opportunity when it comes to you, if it is something that's valuable to you. Well, thank you so much. You were so highly recommended by, I think I told you, uh, Jeanette Wilson. Yeah. Spoke so highly of you. I shared with her what we were trying to do with this work. I shared with her. I said, well, you know, I had an opportunity to be with her. I agree with you. Brandis, we're so grateful for your time today. Can you tell us how we can see more of you on WTTW? Absolutely. Glad you asked. (laughs) Obviously, uh, you can find us at WTTW.com slash news. But, you know, Chicago Tonight airs Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m. and again at 10 p.m. on Channel 11, whatever Channel 11 might be. It also live streams at WTTW.com slash news. We're live streaming on Facebook and YouTube at the same time. And then uh, Black Voices airs Friday nights at 10 p.m. and then it re-airs Saturday at 6.30 Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. 
Thank you so much, Brandis. And I look forward to other work stemming from uh, this podcast and other engagements in the future. Likewise. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. What a fantastic conversation. Please join us next time for another look back and forward with Our Seven Neighbors, birth of a Chicago civil rights movement. Stories from the archives. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.